0: I hear that train is slowing. It's coming round the bend. Yet we haven't seen better earnings since I don't know when. But we're stuck with high expectations, and that rarely works out well. When returns have been so juicy, are investors ready to sell? Sell if you want, but where are you going to go? Crypto seem risky and bond yields have no flow. Emerging markets keep tumbling. Where to put our dough? This is time for risk management. This is time for finesse. This is time for educated investors to get on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. U.S. equity markets are entering the month of August like a lamb, falling for two of the past three weeks, but they're showing a little mojo to kick off the week. The losses have been palpable, but the sentiment is kind of sour, especially in tech and e-commerce. Shares of Amazon.com fell 7.5% on Friday, the biggest one-day drop for the e-commerce giant since May of 2020. Shares of Etsy fell 20%, while shares of eBay and Wayfair fell 7% each. Why? These companies and more are expecting slower growth ahead. Still, the major equity averages wrapped up a pretty solid month in July. The NASDAQ and Dow added 1% and 1.4% respectively, while the S&P 500 jumped 2.2%. Utilities, healthcare, real estate, and technology stocks have led the S&P 500 higher for most of the past few months, while energy and financials have lagged. That's the opposite of what was happening in January and February, which is a telling sign that the economic momentum is starting to slow. Earnings have been phenomenal, but investors only seem to care about the future. 88% of companies in the S&P 500 are beating analyst forecasts. That's a record high, but guidance for the current quarter and the rest of the year has been weak, and some companies are not providing forecasts due to the uncertainty. Revenue growth has been astonishing, but investors only want to know that will continue. They aren't hearing that on earnings calls. The tech sell-off is even worse in China and its territories. The Hang Seng Index fell nearly 10% in the past eight sessions. Chinese and Hong Kong stocks have lost over $1.5 trillion in market value since last Tuesday. The Chinese Communist Party has launched a public campaign designed to rein in China's big tech companies like Alibaba and Ant Financial, citing conflicts of interest with their overseas listings as well as data security issues. Does that sound familiar? The Trump administration oversaw a similar crackdown with companies like Huawei and its U.S. customers back in 2018. Also last week, China banned private tutoring companies for making a profit, crushing most of the EdTech stocks in the region. And then on Friday, the SEC stopped processing registrations of U.S. IPOs and other sales of securities by Chinese companies until they provide more disclosures about their investment risks. As of May 2021, there were 248 Chinese companies listed on U.S. exchanges with a total market capitalization of $2.1 trillion, according to the SEC. But it's not just China. Emerging markets have lost their swagger after leading the first stages of the recovery. The MSCI Emerging Markets Index is down 1.5% so far this year, but down 7% in just the last month. Keep an eye out for the big industrial stocks like Caterpillar, which is down 4.5% in just the past month. They're pretty sensitive to emerging market growth rates. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead. Investors are reckoning with the rise in new COVID-19 cases and what that will mean for the economic recovery as mass mandates are reinstated and companies are pushing back their employees' return dates. All signs point to the pace of economic growth having slowed late in the second quarter as U.S. GDP came in at 6.5%. That was softer than forecast, and companies are telling a similar tale in their quarterly earnings reports. As for those reports, 59% of companies in the S&P 500 have reported actual results to date, and 88% of them have reported earnings per share above analyst estimates. That's the highest percentage of S&P 500 companies reporting a positive EPS surprise since FactSet began tracking that metric back in 2008. This week, nearly one-third of companies in the Russell 3000 will report results, including widely held companies like Uber, DraftKings, Marriott, General Motors, and Kraft Heinz. Hundreds of small to mid-cap companies across all sectors will also report results, Those smaller public companies are very sensitive to changes in the economic temperature, so let's pay attention to their guidance for the rest of the year. On the economic front, the coming week is all about manufacturing, industrial production, auto sales, and jobs. These are all bellwethers of the global economic recovery, and they are moving at different paces around the world. To start the week, we're getting ISM manufacturing and purchasing manager surveys from the US, the EU, and the UK for the month of July. While commodity prices have cooled a bit in recent months, they are still historically high, and we should expect to see their impact in these reports. While supply chains are still bottlenecked around the world, the demand for hard goods like lumber, steel, and copper is cooling, and so are their prices. On Friday, we'll get the non-farm payrolls report for the U.S. and the unemployment rate and report from Canada. Up in the Great North, the unemployment rate is 7.8%, and the labor force participation rate stands at 65.1%. The Canadian economy added 210,000 jobs in June, and more gains are expected in July. In the U.S., June's better-than-expected job gains of 850,000 may have represented the turning point in the labor economy. Companies are still desperate for workers, and the labor force participation rate in this country remains historically low at 61.6 percent, but the rise in new COVID-19 cases and new economic restrictions may have kept more Americans from rejoining the labor force last month. Economists estimate job gains in July of between 850,000 and 900,000. And U.S. lawmakers could finalize that $1 trillion infrastructure bill this week that has been bandied about for the past several months. It calls for $550 billion in new spending, far less than the Biden administration asked for, but it's still spending and we need some repairs. And then there's the U.S. debt ceiling, which we just smashed through yet again. Lawmakers were not able to come to an agreement to postpone the U.S. debt ceiling, which officially went into effect again on Sunday, after a two-year suspension. That debt ceiling, which is the total amount the federal government is authorized to borrow, was set at $22 trillion in 2019. But that was before the pandemic and around $6 trillion in new government spending, which caused a national debt to explode to $28.5 trillion. Since there's obviously no way the U.S. government can pay off that debt, Congress usually votes to delay the debt payments, effectively kicking the can down the road. Well, they didn't do that this time, and they go on vacation next week. This week should be very interesting. The first half of 2021 belonged to the retail trader. Tens of millions of new traders and investors joined the capital markets where we witnessed a mania in meme stocks and cryptocurrencies. While that fervor has cooled a little bit in recent months, we can't deny the fact that day traders and speculators are a feature of our capital markets in ways we may never have imagined. No one knows that community better than Tom Sosnov. He's the founder of Tasty Trade, one of the creators of the ubiquitous thinkorswim trading platform. Welcome to The Express, Tom. So
1: good to have you. Uh, Thank you so much. Nice to be here.
0: What surprised you most about the meme and crypto mania sort of over the past 12 months. You've been an observer of these markets for decades.
1: Anything shock you? Yeah, one, one thing. What took them so long? I've kind of been waiting for that transformational moment for probably about since 2005. And uh, I didn't know what was going to cause it. But I think the only thing that surprised me is kind of what took it so long.
0: Robinhood, one of the original free trading platforms, went public last week following Coinbase, which was the largest US cryptocurrency exchange that went public earlier this year. What do you make of these platforms for trading becoming public companies? I know the big dogs, the ICEs of the world and the Nasdaqs are public companies too. So what do you make of these platforms though?
1: I like when brokerage firms are public. I don't care as much about when exchanges are public. So when you're talking about like, you know, the Ice or SIBO or Merck or something like that, Public exchanges, their focus goes from the customer to the balance sheet. And I don't like that as much because their job is really as a facilitator more than anything else. And they become very conservative and, and they don't really act in the best capacity for the retail investor when they become publicly traded. As for brokerage firms, I actually prefer the transparency of you know the Robin Hoods and Coinbases of the world going public because I think it makes for a better story. I actually like it a little bit better myself. So, I mean, if those companies are willing to deal with the regulatory burden of being public... Then, especially in the Coinbase situation, I think it's healthy for the industry.
0: Right. And when Robinhood did open up the hood, we learned a lot about the company. It's got a lot of customers added, about 10 to 18 million sometime over the last 12 months, makes its money like most brokerage firms from the payment for order flow, which is finally seeing, you know, some light on it from the industry. Do you fear more regulation as we and regulators learn more about how
1: these brokers are operating? I think actually it's going to be a good thing. See, payment for order flow, I'm a huge proponent of payment for order flow. I think it's very misunderstood. I I hate the term payment for order flow because it doesn't do it justice exchanges are not capable of facilitating public business on their own. They're just not capable. It's too fractured. So if individual investors like myself or you or anybody else tries to route orders directly to an exchange, you get crappy fills. You have no recourse against it. There's very little competition, even though they're fungible, it's not a good system. It doesn't work. The competitive nature of high-frequency market-making firms that is bound together by payment is the most efficient way for individual investors to A, reduce their expenses, like reduce transaction costs, things like that, and B, bring better technology and better fill pricing to their order flow. So payment for order flow is a great thing. It's never going away. If anything, it's going to go up. And I think that gets a bad rap. I don't think payment for order flow is what's interesting about Robinhood's business model. I think if you look at their business, the single most interesting takeaway is that they're not a stock trading firm. They're not a free stock app. You think they're a free stock app because that's the whole story, but that's not what they are. They're 80% derivatives and they make all their money from options and from crypto. That's it. You
0: steal my thunder. Like Robinhood, like a lot of other online brokers, are moving deeper into crypto, deeper into options trading, which is your backyard. Option trading is more profitable for brokers, right? There's commissions in
1: some of those trades. What about crypto? It's the capital efficiency. See, stocks are capital inefficient because stocks are too expensive now. So there's nothing to do with the commissions. Brokers, yeah, we lose money on every stock trade, just so you know. Everybody does. Robinhood does, every brokerage firm. There's such a thing called payment for order flow, even on stocks, but you know it's like 10 cents on a thousand shares. It doesn't pay anything. So payment for order flow on stocks is nothing. And Firms actually lose money. Stocks are just kind of show of good faith, free stock commissions. But options you can make money on as a broker because they are capital efficient. So for $500, you can do a spread in Amazon. If you wanted to buy one share of Amazon, you know it's $3,700. It's ridiculous. So stocks are not strategic. Options are strategic and they're capital efficient. Crypto, unfortunately, is not strategic either. But crypto has very high margins. There's a lot of basis points built into the crypto marketplace. So firms like Robinhood make a lot of money on crypto. Most of the other firms, except for Tasty, don't really even have crypto as an offering right now. And that's why Coinbase is obviously so popular because they have the most extensive crypto offering. So explain to
0: our our listeners why a broker would make more money on crypto. Why is that more profitable?
1: If you as a customer buy $1,000 worth of any crypto asset, any digital asset, the brokerage firm is going to make about $10 which is totally reasonable, by the way. I'm not saying that's a ridiculous number. And you make about $10 if you buy $1,000 worth. If you buy $1,000 worth of stock, the brokerage firm loses money. That's the whole difference. Even with payment, even with everything else, the brokerage firm loses money. And if you use $1,000 to trade options with, I mean, the brokerage firm could make anywhere from, I don't know, $5 to $15. Who knows what it is? But they're in kind of the same category. If you do $1,000 worth of futures, the brokerage firm makes about fifty. So in the options world and in the crypto world, it's worth significantly more than the futures world, which is worth a lot less. And then, of course, the stock world, which is worth nothing. Tom, all these new market participants
0: who have joined the stock market in the last year or so, how do we get them to be long-term investors, to think long-term, even if they want to trade, which is totally fine. It's interesting. It's fun. You can make some money. But the risk, as you know, is that newcomers rush in to the risky areas of the market without the knowledge, they lose money and they never come back.
1: Obviously, what Robinhood was able to do, which was to engage you know, 20 million new users or that whole little group of Robinhoods, whatever you want to call them, what they were able to do is what hundreds of millions of dollars of big brokerage firm money has never been able to do, which was to engage that, that entire you know, kind of a generation. I think you have to just look at it statistically and say, hey, you know what? We're not going to keep everybody. But if we keep the middle portion of that distribution curve, if 15% of the people go on to be active traders and 60 some odd percent go on just to participate in the markets, and let's say fifteen or twenty percent drop out, it's still a monster win for the world of finance. And the other piece to it, I love, is that we had this kind of crazy saying we've been we've been using it all the time. Where essentially, if you're my age, you're 25 years old, and one day you wake up and you're 50. Like you literally go to you literally close your eyes one day. When Facts. You're Facts. And then you do, you wake up and you're 50, and you go, where the f did my life go? With respect, I don't know a single thing about finance. Now at least we've got another 20, 30, 40 million people that are 23, 24, 25 that are like, okay, this is cool. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I don't have enough wealth to do exactly what I want to do, but at least I got my feet wet and I don't feel like I'm clueless anymore. Like they're not asking me to check a box on a 401k on an application where I work and just, and close my eyes for like the Jack Bogles of the world drove me nuts because the concept of, okay, just choose a box and go to sleep for 25 years. Is not finance. That's not what this is all about. You learn absolutely nothing from that. What we're doing now is we're engaging people into strategic finance, which will change their lives. Whether they know it or not right now, it will. And they won't wait 25 years to figure out what's wrong.
0: Early engagement is good. Frequent engagement is good because it is that lifelong education process. Do we need more rules, regulations, and guardrails for retail investors? Or do you think they're coming anyway through Gary Gensler at the SEC and other regulatory bodies? I
1: think we need better regulators. So I don't think we need necessarily more rules. I think we need regulators that accept responsibility and that also join the 21st century in the sense that it's 2021. We do not need rules that were written in 1980. And if Gary Ginsler wants to handle this, I, right, in my opinion, they need, the regulators need to step up and the exchanges need to step up. Right now, and this was very evident with the issues that Robinhood had when they really weren't up to the moment in kind of the GameStop situation, but that was really, in my opinion, that was on the regulators. That was on the exchanges. You cannot ask brokerage firms to handle every aspect of this business. We handle the technology. We handle the marketing. We handle the regulatory compliance. Okay, but we can't write the rules. And there are so many things that are messed up, whether it's how many days to settlement, you know, whether it's, it's all the restrictive day trading rules, whatever it may be. The rules are, are in many cases, they're outdated. They're archaic. They don't make sense in 2021. And the regulators have not done their part. And the exchanges have not supported the brokerage firms and have not supported the customers and they have not done their part. So the brokerage firms are way ahead of the curve and the technology and the high frequency market making firms are way ahead of the curve. The regulators need to get with the program. And so if they're going to do anything, it's not about more regulation. It's about waking up and moving 40 years ahead. You're an industry visionary, Tom. How will we trade stocks and securities 10 years from now? What do you see in the future? I think rates have been commoditized to the point where they can't go much lower. I think the technology will continue to get better and it will continue to get cleaner and simpler. But the real change over the next 10 years will not be rates or technology. It'll be a continued improvement in content which will really help people because people are smart. They just want good content. They don't want all the old bullshit that's out there. They want real content that's applicable, that's practical. So the content's going to continue to get better. And then most importantly, the real change over the next 10 years will be capital efficiency as it relates to new products. So just using digital assets as an example, they are right now, they're very capital inefficient. There's no leverage, there's no shorting, there's no derivatives. All that stuff will come to the marketplace. You're going to see massive tokenization. You're going to see digitization globally. You're going to see easier ability to trade in different marketplaces using a single currency and or digital currencies. And I think the future will be about content, capital efficiency, and new product growth. So the platforms 10 years from now will include things like politics, sports, sports, They will include things like binary options on all different markets all over the globe and all different forms of derivatives and tokenization on digital assets and anything where you can have a secure token. So I think it'll be your ability and my ability to trade virtually anything we want anywhere in the world, anytime we want it. But I don't think you're going to see at this point, I don't think you're going to see cheaper rates. I don't think you're going to see the technology is going to be marginally better, but we're pretty damn good right now. I mean, you know, we're routing customer orders in fifty milliseconds. I mean, it's crazy from where we right. started, you know, two decades ago. And
0: we're doing it from our phone, which makes it even crazier. We're talking into our phone and making that happen on the front end, and it's going so quickly through industry. What worries you, Tom, if anything, about this industry or about what's happened over the last few months in terms of what that means for day and retail traders and market participants?
1: What worries me is is that we have elected officials. And I'm not talking about any specific you know, group or anything like that, but we have people that don't understand the importance of liquidity and free market structure. You're witnessing it firsthand right now in China. You're witnessing how basically a government can completely throw their markets and throw their best companies under the bus. And what concerns me here is probably less of kind of the China effect. But what concerns me here is politicians that don't understand, for example, what payment for flow is and how important that is to keep commissions lower and to keep markets competitive. What concerns me is the talk of like something like a transaction tax, which will stifle the liquidity. The US is the greatest pool of liquidity and the most efficient marketplace in the world for everything. And it's our ability to bring new companies out public that keeps the money flow coming front on every level in innovation and creativity. So older, stupid politicians scare me.
0: You must have loved those Robin Hood hearings a few months ago. That was some of the best TV I've seen in a long time.
1: It was painful, even though I believe Robin Hood did a pretty poor job living up to the moment at those hearings. The questions that were asked were beyond painful and were embarrassing. And it's just like the fact that we have to witness that and we, and we can recognize what we're dealing with in Washington. And And again, this is not a Republican versus Democrat thing. This is nothing like that. This is just the fact that we have a lot of people that should not be making decisions about our market structure that are. Okay, flip side, what are you most excited about in the industry looking ahead? I'm most excited about the fact that out of nowhere, We created a world of digital assets and the concept of digitization on so many different levels is the single most exciting thing that's happened in a long time. Because when you think about just a few years ago, that marketplace had a really small, illiquid market value, and now it's worth multiple trillions of dollars. When you think about the potential for that, you can go from zero to multiple trillions in just a couple of years the potential of that marketplace and what it could mean. If it means that we get to cut out all these big banks and financial institutions as middle people, which limit our ability to do things all over the globe, yes, it's going to be great. So digitization is the most exciting thing.
0: I love hearing your vision of the future. You're a true visionary and a pioneer in the industry. Tom Sosnoff, the founder and co-CEO of Tasty Trade. Thanks so much for joining the Express today. We're so happy to have had you here.
1: That was great. Thank you.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Kim in Columbus, Ohio. Let's go, Buckeyes. Kim suggests the term tenor for this week. No, 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 not that kind of tenor, but bravo. Tenor refers to the length of time remaining before a financial contract expires. It's sometimes used interchangeably with the term maturity, although the terms have distinct meanings. Tenor is used in relation to bank loans, insurance contracts, and derivative products. In the derivatives or options market, higher tenor contracts are sometimes considered riskier and vice versa. Tenor is particularly important in a credit default swap because it coordinates the term remaining on the contract with the maturity of the underlying asset. Tenor in the banking world refers to the length of time that will be taken by the borrower to repay the loan along with the interest. For example, a loan is taken out with a two-year tenor. After one year passes, the tenor of the loan is one year. Good suggestion, Kim. I just learned something there and we should all stay attuned to what's happening in the options market and the number of contracts with long tenors. You'll be getting a pair of the ultra-chic Investopedia socks in the mail and we'd like to see you sporting those in the Short North Arts District there in lovely Columbus, Ohio. We're going to let Mark Zuckerberg take us out this week. Here's the founder, chairman, and CEO, and also the top shareholder of Facebook, talking about Facebook's next area of conquest, the
1: metaverse.
2: What is the metaverse? It's um, you know it's a virtual environment where you can be present with people in, in digital spaces. And you, you can kind of think about this as an embodied internet that you're inside of rather than just looking at. And we believe that this is going to be the successor to the mobile internet. Uh, you're going to be able to access the Metaverse from all different devices and different levels of fidelity, from, from apps on phones and PCs to um, immersive virtual and augmented reality devices. Uh, within the Metaverse, you're going to be able to hang out, uh, play games with friends, work, create and more. Um, you're basically going to be able to do everything that you can on the Internet today, um, as well as some things that don't make sense on the Internet today, like dancing. Um, you know, The defining quality of the Metaverse is presence which is this feeling that you're really there with another person or in another place. Creation, avatars, and, and digital objects are going to be central to how we express ourselves. and This is going to lead to entirely new experiences and economic opportunities.
0: Zuckerberg mentioned the metaverse 12 times on Facebook's earnings call last week, and he spoke about it extensively in an interview with The Verge recently as well. You should check that out. In fact, a lot of tech titans are talking about the metaverse lately, including Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Well, what in the flippin' future is the metaverse? Well, the term metaverse first showed up in Neil Stevenson's sci-fi novel, Snow Crash, in 1992. And then we saw it again in Ernest Cline's Ready Player One. Metaverse philosophizing picked up during the pandemic when people started hanging out in immersive video games like Fortnite, Roblox, and Animal Crossing. Unlike the modern internet, Metaverse users will experience changes in real time by all users. If a user makes any kind of change to the Metaverse, that change will be permanent and immediately visible to everyone else. I don't know about you, but I'm gonna chill right here on planet Earth for a while. It's complicated enough, and we've got a lot of work to do to clean this place up. And thanks for riding on The Express this week. We'll talk to you again a little further on down the line.